Uh, We're continuing our look at the book of Luke this morning, Uh, the look at Jesus' life and ministry. If you have your Bible, then go ahead and look at, um, turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 36. If you don't have your Bible, then of course it's inlaid in your bulletin. You can look there. Last week we heard um, just the profound story of Peter's first confession, uh, that he believed that Jesus is the Christ of God. That's what we were talking about. And we talked about just how profound that was. That was the first time that one of the disciples had said out loud their realization that they believe that Christ is the Messiah that was, that, that was sent by God to redeem his people as he had promised through his scriptures. And uh, it was a profound confession, but even so, Uh, there's still much more that Peter has to learn about who Jesus is. That his knowledge about Jesus will only continue to grow. We called it the trailhead. It was where faith faith and understanding who Jesus is begins with that confession. And this story that we're about to look at is uh, immediately following that story, and it's another bright revelation to Peter and, and two other disciples about just who Jesus is, and that's what we're looking at. This is the famous story of the transfiguration. Look with me here. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Jesus, this is just a profound story, and you know um, the challenge in front of me to try and make sense of a story that's just so rich and so deep and so revealing of who you are. And so I pray that you would please help me, uh, help me to be clear and simple and, and help me to love these people well. Uh, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, continue your work of proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is to our hearts. Convince us of this goodness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is hard to talk about, but I'm going to try. Uh, some of you are aware of uh, the the stories that have been in the news um, over the past several months that have described the, uh, and I'm not going to go into detail here, but they've described really the unraveling of an image of a prominent Christian leader. 
somebody through whom many have come to, to meet Jesus Christ, whose uh, prominence has been well known in America and also around the world. And I often get asked when these and the you know when these stories uh, occur, uh, I often get asked how they might affect me, uh, what they might do to me. And I don't want to speak for Matt or Jessica. Things hit the news. They're just profoundly discouraging and sad. Um, And they often come as a warning to those of us who are in this weird place of trying to, this, this, this weird place of trying to serve God's people through leadership in a church. They often come as a warning of just how entirely easy it is to, to build one life in front of the eyes of a congregation we're trying to serve and then uh, build a duplicitous life alongside it. Um, and, uh, and what occurs to me most often is that sin is never far from our hearts, that we're just like the rest of God's people, um, and that often the common thread through, through all of these stories that, is that often we crave a glory that we are just not fit for. And at the same time, what strikes me so profoundly is that as these stories unravel, people get hurt. That there is just profound pain associated with that. And it leads to people asking the question, is there anybody, is there someone that I can trust? Is there someone that can bear the weight of the hopes and the burdens and the expectations of serving Christ in this way? Is there somebody out there for whom the glory does fit? And in this passage, one of the things that we see, and it's just profoundly important that we see this, we see divine, pure divine glory emanating out from the person of Jesus Christ. And if, if you heard this story and you thought, man, there's just a lot going on there. Well, you would be right. And I believe that that's probably exactly what the disciples were feeling as they saw this story. And the pitch for you this morning, sorry, my wife told me she hates when I say that. The pitch for you this morning is that what we're seeing here this morning is the source of glory. The source of glory and the place that it belongs. And I want to talk about this three ways. What we see, what the disciples witness on this, in this passage and can be so encouraging to us is we see the presence of glory, the sharing of glory, and the expectation of glory. The presence, the sharing, and the expectation. Obviously, we, we see glory here, but the first thing I, wanna, I want you to see is that this display of glory is predicted. I think it's predicted. If you look back at the story that, uh, that we looked at last week, if you're able to turn back uh, and look at verse 26 and 27, or you can just remember it because I'm going to read it to you. But, uh, but Jesus says, um, uh, of, he talks about the Son of Man coming in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. And then he says this, he says, I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here is important, and we got to see this connection. He has connected 
both the manifestation of the kingdom or the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, with the manifestation of his glory. Those two things are happening at the same time. They're intimately connected with each other. And he says, there are some of you who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in his glory. Now, there are a lot of theories about what Jesus was talking about here, and a lot of them make sense. But I think a plain reading of the text says that Jesus is talking about this story of the transfiguration right here. Because eight days later, he's up on top of a mountain with some of them, and this is what he sees. The presentation of glory. Verse 29 says, It is the appearance, the, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. Glory was predicted, and glory was presented. And what they're seeing is the privilege of seeing Jesus as he truly is. This is divine glory. He's not reflecting it. It's coming out of his inner person. It's like radiating out from his core. Now, can you imagine just what this would have been like for them when they saw this? Like, usually when we go up to the top of a mountain, if we hike or something up to the top of a mountain, we're looking for a view of some kind, right? And sometimes that view is so stupendous So incredible, it has the power to take our breath away. It hints at the glory that we long for. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, but the effect of it is something like that. This is what John Calvin was talking about when he looked at creation and he called it the theater of God's glory. And in those moments, what we're reminded of is that in so many ways, we were created for glory. That it's an intuitive longing in our hearts to to find glory and be around it. We want to be near it. And if we can't, all too often we're actually trying to build it for ourselves, right? And, And this passage is telling us that A, we're created for glory. And if you are looking for glory, there is one place that you will find it. In the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the source of glory. And if you want to be connected to the glory that you you were made for, that's where you'll find it, in Jesus Christ himself. The presence of glory. But what's amazing is that you also see the sharing of glory. I just think it's so funny that this this, uh, glory of God came to the disciples when they were sleeping. Did you notice that? It said they were heavy with sleep. And there are other places where uh, Jesus actually reprimands the disciples for falling asleep when he takes them somewhere, but not in this case. And the truth is, is that following Christ can be hard, right? It can be downright exhausting. And the glory comes, it says they were heavy with sleep, and then all of a sudden in verse 32, it says they become fully awake. The sharing of glory can actually wake us up. And Jesus isn't alone. He's joined with two prominent figures, Moses and Elijah, and it says that they too are also appearing in glory. Now what's going on there? 
Moses is a, a prom. You probably have heard his name before, but Moses is a prominent father of uh, the people, the, the of the Israelite people. He was the one who led them out from slavery to the brink of the promised land. And the passage that we read earlier in the um, earlier in the service was a story of him going up on a mountain to to commune with God. It says he went up into a cloud and he met face to face with God on top of a mountain. One time he came down the mountain and uh, the people said his face was shining. And there's a story where Jesus, where Moses says to God, I want to see you in all your glory. And, uh, and God hides him in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand as his glory passes by. And Elijah has a similar story. If you'll find him, he's one of the great prophets of Israel. You'll find him in 1 Kings. And when you come to chapter 19, you'll see that Elijah also wants to see God's glory, but God hides him in, his, in a cave as his glory passes by. What's going on here? Why does God feel the need to protect these men as his glory passes by? Because one of the things that we come to understand is that when people meet God in all of his glory, it completely undoes them. Isaiah is another good example of this. Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of God and he is completely undone. And what does he say? He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah in that moment is remembering the sin in his heart and realizing that he is unfit to be around God's glory. And the biblical proposition for you and for me is this understanding that in our sin, we're not, we can't share space with God's glory without being consumed by it, without being undone by it. And the most amazing thing here is that these disciples are around Jesus and his glory And Moses and Elijah, who should have been dead for centuries, are not dead, but they're alive, and they're appearing in glory, and they're getting a picture of what it looks like to share in glory. And what's amazing about all of this is that that you've got Peter who's looking at this who's looking at all of this happening, and he's the guy who has to do something, right? Like Peter is, I'll just say, Peter's my favorite. He's my favorite disciple. You know why? Because he's the guy who can't just sit and watch amazing things happen. He has to do something. He's like always operating in a comic state of mania that way. He's, he's the first guy off the helicopter, okay? Uh, and the last guy on. That's Peter. He's bold and he, and he runs hard. And he says, oh, this is a good moment. This is really amazing what's happening. I'm going to build tents for everybody. That's his response. Now, what's going on there? Well, Peter, um, there are a number of great theories. They all have merit to them. I'm just going to try and hash out a few of, a few of them for you here. And, uh, and one is that, um, that Peter is actually afraid of this glory. And he wants to build tents. Another word for uh, tents are tabernacles. And he, he wants them, to put them in a tent that might shield them or protect them from this manifestation of glory. That's one. It's an interesting idea. I think there's merit to it. 
Another idea is that he's trying to realize, fully realize the kingdom of God now. Remember, kingdom connected to glory. That's a good idea. That's maybe. I tend to think that this text leads us to believe that Peter is so happy about what's happening that he's trying to prolong this moment as long as he can. That he's actually trying to sustain, sustain what's happening. And what Peter doesn't understand yet is that a price has to be paid. That a price has to be paid that resolves the conflict that our sin and God's glory have. And the good news is that that's just what Jesus came to do. He comes to make it possible for us to one day share in God's glory again. That we could be around God without being consumed or afraid of or ashamed by something so pure as God's glory. And so when he takes his journey to the cross, I want you to see this. He is the only one in that scene without any sin because he is the pure, spotless lamb who's offering himself as the sacrifice that bears the cost of our sin. And when you look to him in faith, when you are trusting him with the weight of your life, you are right now in the eyes of the Father justified in his sight. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you are being sanctified. And you will be, this is the scriptural promise, you will be glorified in the very image of Jesus himself. Romans 8 is a wonderful passage. It tells us about how the hope of Jesus is the very hope of glory. Uh, Romans 8.18 tells us Paul writes this, he says, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And later on in that same passage, just verse 30, he says, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. If your faith is in Jesus... You are given the expectation that you will one day be glorified too. And when the disciples see this happening with Jesus, they are witnessing the generous sharing of God's glory with his people. And so that's why it's important that we not just see Jesus sharing God's glory. Uh, It's his to give. It can't be manipulated. He He's generous with it as he sees fit, but we also are called to the expectation of glory. The glory cloud showed up. Verse 34, it says, this cloud appears, and with the cloud, the voice of the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And the appearance of this cloud is incredibly significant. And anybody who knows the Old Testament narratives would know the significance of what just happened. When Moses was leading God's people out of Egypt to the promised land, God went before them as the pillar of a cloud. And uh, when Solomon built the temple for the Lord to dwell in, it says that the Shekinah glory cloud filled that temple. 
And in Ezekiel 10, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of the glory cloud leaving the temple and they never saw it again. And the absence of this glory cloud over the course of many, many years would have just been terrifying for the people. Because the presence of the cloud meant that God was with them. That his favor was on them. That he was protecting them. That he was going before them and leading them. And in many ways, when the cloud was lost, in many ways the people were lost. Even more, there was, it was this sign that God's glory was with them and the people rallied around. And now the cloud appears, and what does this cloud do? The voice of the Father is now pointing to Jesus. And it's almost as if he's saying, just as you, God's people, once looked to, this, to, the, to God's glory cloud as a sign of, uh, of, uh, uh, that I am with you and, and for guidance, I now want you to find this in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ himself ushers us into the expectation of glory. That we we go where he takes us. And there's this wonderful passage at uh, at the end of this book in Revelation that sets out for us the expectation of the glorious community where God is taking us to. John says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. That he is sharing his glory with his people, but he's also establishing a glorious kingdom. And he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And then this is what he says. This is amazing. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light. And the lamp is its lamb. But... Listen, Jesus doesn't just bring you to share in his glory and glorify you individually. He's also promising you a time when you and I will exist together with Jesus as our head in a glorious kingdom community. That is the sweet promise of Jesus held out for you and for me, which means we have nothing to be afraid of. When Jesus comes back in judgment... We have nothing to be afraid of. When I was a kid, when I was in high school, there was, I went to a high school that had a, uh, it had a street, a highway that ran right in front of the property. And the, this was a private school. And I remember there were all these parents meetings about just how dangerous that was all the time. You know, like you had this school property and a very busy highway that ran in front of it. And there was a sidewalk along the highway, believe it or not. And I remember there were times where I would get dropped off for school and I had to walk along the sidewalk with cars like whipping past me. I had to go over a bridge to get to, the, uh, to, get to my school with cars just flying past me really, really fast. And I remember thinking, man, if I, uh, if I stumbled or like tripped in some way, that could be really dangerous. If you're standing on a highway... With cars moving very, I blew it. It doesn't work that way. If you're on the highway 
with cars moving very fast, what's the safest place to be? In the car. And there's going to be a moment when Jesus comes back and we will see the risen Son of God and it will look like what the disciples saw that day on the top of a mountain. And the glory of God is coming with him. And everyone will fear him. And in that moment, the safest place to be is in him. And if you're ever wondering if there's a leader that you can trust that can bear the weight of glory that you long for and you long to be near, then you'll find it safely hidden in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Jesus, um, you are the one who generously gives of yourself and you promise the glory that we long for. And I pray that the glimpse that the disciples had that day would would, uh, consume our imagination and it would secure us in hope and that you, Jesus Christ, would be our anchor as we make our way through these days. I pray that you would help us to labor and long for the day when your kingdom is established. Hold us, I pray, in your name. Amen.